You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Lizzie Burden's with us today as well. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Stephen. So we're all together because we are focusing on the year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began and the effect that it's had on British politics as well. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky saying that he says that they know that 2023 will be the year uh, of their victory. Still plenty of developments on this story. So much focus on the Ukraine story today. Yeah, absolutely. We've been speaking to our correspondents live in Kiev this morning about you know what that city has gone through but also as we think about a year of war China has come up with this 12-point peace plan it's largely been rejected by other world powers the US UK and so on the US talking about sweeping sanctions against key sectors uh, in Russia so I think those are the things that you know a lot of world leaders are thinking about now we're going to be talking about the global and the domestic in the show today and um, Liz Let's talk about the the effect this year of conflict has had on politics here in the UK. Well, at the start of the conflict, Boris Johnson played a huge role as Prime Minister in getting support for Ukraine on a global stage. And every Prime Minister that's followed him has tried to do the same. Although I have to say Boris Johnson is still adored in Ukraine, so it's hard to keep up with that. Of course, recently we had President Zelensky visiting in London, making his plea for fighter jets. But there's also an economic blowback for the UK, and that has dominated the political agenda here. The impact on inflation of higher energy costs, uh, and that has had secondary effects on departmental budgets across Whitehall, including defence. And it'll be interesting as well to hear your interview later on in the programme with the former UN Deputy Secretary General Mark Mallet-Brown, where I, I, I hear that he suggests Britain could play peacemaker in the conflict if it plays its cards right? Well, it's a big if. I think his concern is that the UK has been so hawkish so far that that might be quite difficult. You're right, though, that it's difficult um, for Rishi Sunak to match in rhetoric and in commitment, I think, to the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But he is expected to make the case for longer range weapons to be sent to Ukraine uh, today uh, to talk about rejecting a kind of incremental approach. So, you know, Sunak is trying um, to to live up, I think, to mm. what the UK's 
sort of commitment to Ukraine has been so far. Yeah, and we've had the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace speaking earlier as well, talking about offering to give its fighter jets to European allies to help backfill their stocks if they choose to give older jets to Ukraine. So, I mean, there's so many complicated pieces of this picture. Let's bring in our Senior Executive Editor for International Government, Rosalind Matheson. Um, Ros, just to, to kind of set the scene for us, is this a year that we should be talking about the, the political landscape in Europe having been totally changed? Well, exactly. That You're looking at the way that this war in Ukraine has sort of had cascade effects on so many areas, be it sort of energy supply, energy access, the way that Europe um, is united perhaps between states that were arguing only months earlier, like, for example, Poland and Brussels. Um, and you've seen a great show of unity across the board in Europe, by and large, in terms of supporting Ukraine, be it sending military aid or financial aid. Uh, you've seen those questions, though, about energy security, food security. Uh, Lizzie was talking about impact on prices and inflation, all the knock-on effects and, and governments sort of grappling with that. And that sort of really feeds into what we might sort of see as the risk in the second year of this war, which is as it does go on, do those questions rise further about unity, um, the level of support for Ukraine? Do you know we're seeing polling in some countries showing that people are starting to say, well, we we still sympathise with Ukraine, but we feel like we've done enough. Uh, meanwhile, our own economic challenges are rising, and so some of those fundamental questions are really going to rise up for Europe uh, this mm. year. Yeah, absolutely. You just have to look at the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to understand. You know, Russia ending the war in Ukraine is the most important thing, she said today, for the global economy. You know, this has repercussions everywhere. I also want to go back to that point that I made about the the 12-point peace plan. How seriously should we take China's effort to draw up a peace plan? Are there any other options on the table when we hope and think about, you know, when this war might end? We're actually sort of moving away from calling it a peace plan in a way. It's sort of like a blueprint that reflects more sort of Chinese foreign policy than any real serious effort you would think to try and mediate this conflict. And that's because, you know, we're seeing lots of countries come forward with blueprints for what they think could be a way forward um, to get Ukraine and Russia perhaps to the table to get a proper ceasefire. But Fundamentally, the issue is that Ukraine will not negotiate or have a ceasefire unless Russia agrees to withdraw its troops as a precursor. Russia refuses to do that. And so how do you get to a point where you get any kind of plan that would get the two of them to the table? And the challenge also is that any country really, you know, may not be palatable to the other side as an honest broker. I mean, China has not overly condemned Russia for its actions, but it's not overly supported them, but it's not really sort of strongly supported Ukraine either. So would Ukraine agree to China being in the middle of that? Same with the UK, for example, uh, where they very strongly supported Ukraine, as you've been noting. Um, Would Russia accept the UK in the middle? Um, So it's going to be very challenging either way to find any country that can be sort of that thoughtful and acceptable mediator uh, for some kind of talks in some undetermined point in the future. And I wonder where this leaves NATO, because in 2019, Emmanuel Macron said it was brain dead. But actually, has the war been the rebirth of the organisation? Well, certainly it's it's given NATO perhaps a new lease of life. Um, we've seen, of course, NATO strongly supporting countries um, out on the flank that are much closer 
to Russia, um, sending more weapons and troops there, bolstering those countries that feel quite close to the periphery with Moscow. You know, that sort of countries, including Poland, for example, in the Baltic states. We're seeing potential NATO enlargement. Of course, Sweden and Finland still looking to join NATO. Uh, Finland might end up being first, given the issues with Turkey, of course, around Sweden. So arguably NATO has become more central. Um, the question, of course, is like, what is its role um, in, 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 the, in the conflict going forward? Because, of course, countries still remain reluctant to send some of the very long range equipment into Ukraine to providing air support, fighter jets and so on. Um, there's still that concern in, in NATO, you can see, about being drawn very directly into the conflict. Mm. Um, are we perhaps... Have we miscalculated, I suppose? We're looking back at a year um, and the roots of this, though, of this conflict go back further, don't they? They go to the end of the Cold War. Has the West miscalculated how to engage actually both with Russia and with China? Well, that's the question because we're moving very clearly or have moved very clearly away from a world where there's a single superpower um, back to a very multipolar existence. And that's really China and the US. And you can see that states are sort of coalescing um, around China or the US. And that's why Beijing has, you know, to some extent sort of remained a partner for Russia because both those states don't want to be aligned with the US. So you're seeing all these countries fall under that. Um, and, you know, perhaps in hindsight was the sort of this, the single superpower, you know, post-World War II existence always going to be temporary? I mean, a lot of phases in history show us that these moments do pass and we, and we change again. Um, and you can see that countries perhaps thought we're never going to see a big land war again. We're going to cut our defence spending. We don't have to worry about things like artillery, ammunition, troops on the ground. This has been a reminder, again, that history does tend to repeat itself. Um, and all the ways that, you know, Eastern Europe, you know, was drawn up after World War II, the ways that the Soviet Union collapsed, perhaps in hindsight, was there too much optimism about keeping Russia inside the tent? Roz, how should we think about the UK's place in all of this? Obviously, it's taken a very vocal and role in supporting Ukraine, is is it part of actually helping to repair or reset relations between the UK and particularly the rest of Europe? Well, that's been the interesting thing because the UK, as you've noted, has been an avid supporter of Ukraine under sort of the various prime ministers the UK has had in recent times, um, including Boris Johnson onward um, and sending a lot of direct military aid, um, now talking about perhaps loaning fighter jets to some parts of Europe. But it still feels in a way that Europe's sort of, you know, operating on a different track to this with the UK. You can see the European leaders talking a lot together, going in together. The UK, you know, is obviously still avidly supporting Ukraine, but seems to be doing slightly its own thing. Um, and, you know, again, perhaps just reflecting the fact that there is that disconnect um, that's gone on since mm. Brexit happened. Yeah, okay, so post-Brexit Britain. Just lastly, do things change again with the US presidential election next year? Well, that is the big factor. And you can see the US is trying to front run a lot of aid into Ukraine, uh, you know, bake in the financial stuff particularly, because um, in the run up to the election, not only do you have Republicans controlling uh, the House um, Congress and sort of starting to raise questions about that financial support, um, but going into the election cycle, you can imagine it's going to feed into the campaigns either way. And that will be the question of like, do we continue to support Ukraine so much when we've got economic challenges at home? So it's definitely going to be a political question going into that. 
are there are there questions elsewhere about support for Ukraine or are we still looking at everyone being very full-throated in the support they have been as up to this point? Well, we are seeing some public polling again, not just in the US, um, but in parts of Eastern Europe, for example. I mean, Poland has taken in a huge number of Ukrainian refugees and housed them um, over the past year and, and done so admirably. But in there you're seeing some evidence of people saying, hang on, this is a huge burden on us and how long does this go on for? And especially further afield in what you think of as the global south, again, those countries that have not signed up for sanctions, that have sort of tried to stay somewhat neutral um, in, in their stance on this conflict, are asking those questions, you know, how much longer do we need to be seen to be showing support? And so, you know, again, a war in, in a second year is going to be difficult for momentum globally. Um, and you're going to see that more and more. Ros, thank you so much for being with us. That is Bloomberg's Senior Executive Editor for International Government, Rosalind Matheson. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Let's hear from Kyiv now, where the city's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, says Vladimir Putin wants to rebuild a Soviet empire with its invasion of Ukraine. He's been speaking to our Europe correspondent, Maria Tadeo. It's uh, huge challenges we have uh, in, uh, in this year. Actually, I'm very happy. I just came in from Munich uh, Security Conference and uh, I'm very happy because I don't want to explain about uh, this war in, uh, in Security Conference. Everyone in the world see real face of this war. It's not a war, it's terrorism. It's, uh, it's genocide of uh, uh, Ukrainian population. Uh, everything what we have in the last year, uh, years of war, uh, I can tell just uh, very simple um, uh, words, uh, ex- describing uh, two words. Putin need Ukraine, but he need don't need us, Ukrainians. It's uh, we li- we living in uh, this year under the rockets attack and the uh, kamikaze drones. Uh, we have uh, a lot of uh, problems. We have we live in blackout without electricity, water. Uh, uh, and yet people say we're never going to surrender to Russia. Uh, when you talk to people in very I, difficult I, circumstances, I, they still say we're not going to surrender to Russia. I, I give me a question, what's the reason to uh, bomb the civilians uh, in our hometown, destroy the uh, civilian infrastructure, let people freezing in the winter? It's a simple uh, answer. The Russians want to uh, bring depressive mood mm-hmm. to our citizens. Instead, then, they have totally different answer. I talked to the people and they told, better we live without electricity 
civilian hitting without water, but never ever with Russian soldier. And I have to ask you though, the thing that's striking to me here is that you don't feel any panic. The people know what they have to do when the air sirens go off and, and that's it. But are you worried about what may come in the next 24 hours? There has been speculation that maybe something could happen. Yesterday was quiet, but what about tonight? Uh, I'm more than sure it will be quiet tonight. We put in use and try to do it everything what we can. He sent soldier. He was not successful. He sent rockets. Was not successful. Kamikaze drone not successful. Putin actually try everything uh, what he can uh, to make a pressure to us. But uh, we are still unbroken and we ready to defend our hometown, defend our country because it's our family. We fighting for our children, for our future. And Mr. Klitschko, they say that in a war you need to know what the enemy wants from you. What does Vladimir Putin want in Ukraine? Is this about back to the USSR? Is this about believing that you two are inseparable nations? Is this about just expanding the power of Russia? Uh, Putin, I tell, he's, uh, has unhealthy opinion uh, for the world. and uh, no, Not opinion, the vision for he wants to rebuild Soviet empire. They you think never, that's what it they, is? They, they don't never accept, accept Ukraine as uh, independent country they told Ukraine was always part of Russia mm -hmm. we don't want we Ukrainian don't want back to USSR we see our future as part of democratic European family we're fighting for that and the people have demonstrated that for for a long time now but I want to ask you some final question given everything you've seen uh, over the past year the fact that here is quiet but the front line it's a very intense fight are you more convinced now than a year ago that you are going to win the war uh, listen, uh, here's illusion. It's very peaceful atmosphere, but a couple of uh, hundred miles from here, it's a real battle, and uh, we pay for our peaceful uh, atmosphere here with uh, expensive price, pri uh, lives of our soldier, of our patriots, and uh, it's uh, we uh, listen. Russian soldier fighting for the money. The lives is painless. Nobody give, uh, ready to give the lives for the money, but we defending our family our children and we're fighting for future of our children and uh, I'm more than sure we have great motivation I'm as former fighter tell you it's what it's not important how big are you how strong are you it's very important you will to win your spirit and Ukrainian soldier Ukrainian Petras is very good motivated I'm more than sure we stop the Russian aggressions we win this senseless war what do it Russia against Ukraine that was the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, speaking to our Europe correspondent, Maria Tadeo. Inspiring words, aren't they? Yeah, interesting to hear certainly his perspective after a year of conflict there. Now, what hope is there for a peaceful resolution of this war? We've been discussing this with the former UN Deputy Secretary General Mark Malik Brown, who's now president of the Open Society Foundations. He says it's difficult to see where the war goes from here. It's less clear that this has a fairy tale ending than it looked like a few months back. Ukraine remains outarmed, outnumbered, outgunned, and that has got to be corrected. And that requires a real step up uh, in Western military support. Mm. But perhaps as a diplomat, you know, what, what's particularly alarming is escalating wars is a dangerous business if you don't have an exit strategy at the end. And that's the yawning gap in this very unclear where you arrive at a point uh, that the two sides uh, would agree to something reasonable in terms of a sustainable peace agreement. Earlier this week, we were speaking to the head of the Kiev School of Economics, who was talking to us, um, saying that 
he did not anticipate an end of this war in the way that there was an end to World War One or to World War Two, that this could end up being a sort of forever challenge. Is this a failure of international diplomacy that the war is ongoing for for this long? How how should we think about you know how the war ends? Well, look, international diplomacy is by its nature an opportunistic business. You wait until the two you see a, an opening between the two sides, some sort of overlap point, a Venn diagram point, where despite their very different interests, there's a common interest uh, in making peace. One side is starting to weaken and lose. Uh, the other side moderates its overreaching demands. Neither of those conditions are met here. Both sides believe themselves to be winning. Uh, neither side is willing to moderate its demand. There really isn't the basis on which a serious peace talks uh, could proceed. Now, failure where? Failure really ultimately in the head of President Putin and the Russian people. There's considerable popular support for this war in Russia, which feeds into a kind of sentimental, patriotic, post-imperial view of Russia, of former Soviet Union, having been stripped of its powers by voracious uh, Western enemies. And, and this is a chance to kind of course correct history, to uh, recover the empire. And this is both bad history, uh, but a dangerous pathology because, you know, it simply doesn't uh, go to the fact that Russia has to learn to live peacefully with its neighbors mm -hmm. if it expects to be a kind of member of the international community. What do you make of the movements we've had from China? Their top diplomat Wang Yi was in Moscow. Xi Jinping said to be considering a trip to Moscow to perhaps discuss some sort of resolution. How important is, will China be and how this plays out? Well, I think China, although it may irritate the West, almost certainly could be a key actor in, in getting some resolution. I mean, what you look for at moments like this is countries which have some purchase and influence over the two combatants. And definitely China has that over, over Russia. And so, you know, let's not rule out, could be a force for bringing uh, Russia to the peace table, not least because, you know, Putin is anxiously seeking arms supplies from China. Um, but, you know, there is a risk that China instead goes the sort of easy route, if you like, and just helps stock up the arms supply. And that would be a really challenging and dangerous development. I think it is worth saying that in a way, this war is now about economics and it's about supply chains as much as it is, you know, what's happening in the sort of grim front line itself. And just as the Ukrainians are making appeals to the West for arms, the Russians are similarly to the Iranians and Chinese desperately seeking resupply. Uh, you know, this, uh, this is to overstate it, but, you know, this kind of war which may be ended by the last man standing with the last bullet left. The UK in all of this, Britain has been extremely supportive militarily of Ukraine. Is there a bigger diplomatic role for the UK to play? What is Britain's role in all of this? Well, look, in the same way that China has some purchase on, on, on Russia, I can imagine a moment where uh, Britain would have purchase on Ukraine to help bring Ukraine to the table. The difficulty will be that, you know, the very history of Britain and the leadership of Britain at the moment, which has made it such an important war partner, 
may not allow it to be such an effective peace partner. I, I think the risk will be that the Brits will be seen as the sort of, if you like, the jingoistic cheermongers for the war case, uh, and it will be sort of sober voices in Europe uh, which will take the lead uh, along with the US on peace talks when and if the moment comes. So that was the former UN Deputy Secretary General Mark Malik Brown, now the Open Society Foundation's uh, president, speaking to us. Look, a man of such experience, I just want to think back to the time before the invasion uh, started when we were speaking to the MP Tobias Elwood, the chair of the Defence Select Committee. He was so sure that in his warning that in a few weeks' time Russia was going to invade Ukraine and there was still very much a debate about whether or not that would happen. He was saying... Look at the troop build-up. I still think we have to kind of bear that in mind, that there was a lot of disbelief around, you know, this kind of aggression from Russia. But here we are a year on. I think that's the problem in government all the time, that you can never deal with a crisis until it's on you, upon you. There are so many uh, that are just waiting to kick off, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, and so many examples of that in the past as well. But certainly I think a lot of people are having reflections as to to where things were a year ago now as we're speaking to all of these different players both in in Kiev and elsewhere about where this war goes from here and what hopes there are uh, for a resolution so really interesting to hear Mark Malik's Brown's perspective there as well as we mark this one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began that is it from us for today if you like the programme don't forget to subscribe to our podcast give it a five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you usually listen this episode was produced by James Wilcock and Mouful Hussein was on sound I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.